0: Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned.
1: I'm Jennifer Albright, and I'm here with our co-host, Tim Heindrick.
2: Yeah, long time no see, huh?
1: Yeah, uh, Tim's been in Sydney getting a film degree, uh, barely got out with his life.
2: Yeah, well, I got a film diploma, let's say that. Uh, Whether I got the education, that's for a uh, Sydney court to decide.
1: (laughs) It's it's a good story, and we'll be talking about it soon, because it actually is really tragic, but we'll get to that. Uh, In the meantime, uh, for Tim's first episode back, I have a very special guest, uh, the man voted most beloved of traditional Catholic Twitter <laughs> uh, Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House. Matt, thanks for coming on the show.
3: Thanks for having me. Hi, guys.
1: Uh, so, Matt, the reason I had you on was uh, you suggested a really fine film for us to discuss, one that's a uh, little seen for good reason.
2: One that's a part of my past as well, but okay. go on.
3: Yeah, I feel I felt frankly a little sadistic suggesting this because it is one of the most unwatchably terrible films ever made. Inscrutable, but, yeah, yeah. But it really does like represent a specific moment in filmmaking. Uh, uh, the, that kind of the post-Tarantino 90s. It, it, it really shows like how low the bar was for people who wanted to rip off Quentin Tarantino. After Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction came out, it
2: it really is like at the point where kind of like new cool indie cinema kind of disappeared up its own ass. I feel.
3: Yeah, uh, the film we're referring to is 1996's Mad Dog Time, written and directed by one of the greatest fail sons in Hollywood history, <laughs> uh, uh, the great, incomparable, brilliant Larry Bishop.
2: That's uh, that's Mad Dog Time, a.k.a. Trigger Happy. because A.k.a. They, trigger Happy, yes. Yeah, because uh, there's the point where it came out on VHS or DVD or whatever, and they're just like, look, this movie's name is Bad News. We have to, like, trick people into renting it by calling it yeah. something else entirely.
1: Yeah. And this really is a good crystallization of the concept of a fail son because there are few better examples of when somebody so undeserving has been handed so
3: much
2: well, when we we're watching it, I think Jen summed the movie up best as an ocean of wasted talent.
3: It's a, incredible. The, the cast in this movie is astoundingly dense and good. And you got to figure it comes down to the fact that this guy is a scion of Hollywood royalty. His dad was Joey Bishop, uh, who was one of the comedy hanger on of the of the Rat Pack. And <clears throat> the movie has this incredible cast: Gabriel Byrne, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Dreyfuss. Uh Bert Reynolds for uh, some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Kyle McLaughlin. Uh yeah, even
2: like character actors. Um the guy who played Bly from Briscoe County.
1: Yeah, Billy Drago. Yeah, yeah.
3: Billy Drago, Gregory
2: Hines, Billy Idol. Yeah. Uh, Billy I I'd forgotten about that.
3: Al Barkin. And the thing that unites all of them is that every single one of them turns in the worst performance of their career. <laughs> Which is astounding, especially when you consider guys like Burt Reynolds who've been in a ter a million terrible movies. Yeah. This is still his worst performance.
2: It's it's weird to think that he did that and then like, I don't know, what like two one or two years later he's in Boogie Nights.
1: Yeah, this was right around the time when he had a career resurgence because of boogie nights. And the same thing for um
2: Not because of striptease.
1: <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> no, um the same thing happened for Diane Lane, who's also in the movie. Um she her star had somewhat fallen. Uh, after her being kind of hot in the 80s and then um, she came back with uh, what's the Adrian Lyne movie where she fucks a French guy Richard Gere's in it
2: I should know that
1: I forget
2: Primal Fear no that's with Edward Norton
3: oh oh uh, Unfaithful
1: yes um, and then that led to a kind of career renaissance for her so she she came out of Mad Dog time I think uh, relatively well
2: people are just like her, we got to do something with her.
1: Yeah, this poor woman.
2: Yeah, everyone else already had been established in their careers, and I guess, yeah, and yeah, just doing this as a favor, you know, which you, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and man, we slogged that through that road, didn't we? Yeah, and, uh, you
1: know, then Ellen Barkin, poor Ellen Barkin, she doesn't come across quite
3: as uh... a...
2: Have, have we seen Ellen Barkin anything since? Was that the point where she's like, you know?
3: She <laughs> was in... Most I, the last thing I think she was in was *Oceans 13, uh, uh. where she like she gets she gets uh, slipped a Mickey and wants to have sex with Matt Damon while he's wearing a big fake nose. <laughs> That's comedy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. She's she, she's had the fate of most uh, actresses who've tried to continue once they've reached a certain age. Well, wow. a, after the *Logan's Run*. Uh, You know, button starts
0: beeping
3: up
1: her hand. Renew, renew. Yeah, um, because some some actresses can kind of work past that, but others don't for so well. Although I think she married some, like, uh, rich investment guy.
2: Now married to an entertainment attorney in Sherman Oaks. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, uh, she married some rich, like investment banker type guy and walked around, walked away with twenty million bucks. So maybe she doesn't have to act. I don't know.
3: Yeah, that's that's the, that. that's that's really the best escape plan you can have when you're an actress.
1: Yeah, I should have been an actress.
2: Well, you and me both. So <laughs> um,
1: before we get a little too caught up. um, this, and this is the hard part. This is usually the point in the show where we give a little bit of a capsule summary Rah! of the movie. Oh,
2: where but to start?
1: How, how the fuck do you explain Mad Dog Time?
2: Well, I would say someone's like, hey, this movie Goodfellas is really good. And someone's like, okay, all right, Goodfellas. Like, do you want to learn anything about, like, the mob? Or you want to go outside or talk to another person? No, 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 I got this. I'll just flip through some Vogue or some GQ or something. And yeah, yeah. and uh, let's see, I'll just look around and like, okay, let's see. Um, let's see, Jack Daniels. Okay, I'll do that. Or champagne. Yeah, okay, these are all cool things. Smoke a cigar. Oh man, this thing writes itself.
3: It's basically like, you know, those memes, those uh, swag is for boys, classes for men memes. It's basically that as a film. Just, hey, remember when dames wore nice dresses and guys dressed up in suits and they drank martinis and they sat in rooms and they, they traded patter and then one of them shot the other one. <laughs> no, that, that was never a thing. What are you talking about? Yeah, no, it was. It was totally a thing. Okay, but you're yeah, the son of the famous uh, Hollywood comedian.
2: Because, again, like the world in Mad Dog Time, it has its economy is based around there's a, a gravedigger, and a nightclub. Yeah. So, it's I don't know, it's a it nightclub? It really feels like
3: post-apocalyptic. It's almost like these are the last people on Earth. No,
2: it really is <laughs> They're not. in
3: these two nightclubs. And then they just slowly kill each other until there's only a few of them left.
1: And I, I wonder if that was originally part of the conceit because of the weird opening of the film. Oh, yeah. It's, so it opens weird. like a fucking Star Trek movie. Yeah. With like yeah. a galaxy on a star field. And it's like, hey, like, one day in another dimension
3: everything it's, was cool <laughs> it was
1: joyful it was there was fucking a sw- full of joy another,
3: there's another oint it's a swinging oint <laughs> yeah. and
1: it's like okay i feel completely unmoored already but go on and
3: I, I would
2: i just had a uh thought um how, what's his name uh from from family guy like he should be seth mcfarlane should have been involved in this
3: See, this is why oh yeah that that is fetish, fetishization of like 50s Culture, totally. Yes,
1: one hundred percent. And this is why I was telling Tim before we started. Um, Sinatra, as much I, I actually love Sinatra's music, but Sinatra has been kind of ruined for me by guys like this, like guys like Seth MacFarlane, who kind of like appropriate the look and this notion of a kind of super cool masculinity that maybe only existed for like three people, one of whom was Sinatra.
2: It's it's the same kind of idea that's like, oh, I'll wear a trilby and
3: vroom, I'm automatically cool. Yeah,
1: the, the Grant J. Kidney style
3: of... Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. If if Grant Kidney made his own film, it would look like this. No question. Except the pregnancy would be faked.
1: Oh, yeah, because that's what bitches do. Because be you, you can't be trust lying.
3: women. Yeah. <laughs> bitches be lying. <laughs> it's, it's a movie for fedora
1: wearers the world over.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> fedora the movie. Now that I would watch. Oh, yeah. So we still haven't really described the plot, though. Because you can't, it's
1: an impossibility. Okay,
3: I'll I'll, I'll give it a shot. All (laughs) right, let's uh, lay it on us. Okay, so Jeff Goldblum plays, like, the right-hand man of this mob boss, played by uh, Richard Dreyfuss, who had checked himself into a mental hospital months ago, and while he was away, Goldblum had an affair with Dreyfuss' girlfriend, and now he's coming out of the mental hospital, and everyone's like, "Uh uh-oh, you're in trouble now. uh but then the whole movie after that is different people in rooms talking to each other until one of them shoots the other one, until it's just Richard Dreyfus, and uh, Jeff Goldblum and Larry Bishop as this super good hitman who had been hired to kill Jeff Goldblum, and by by Richard Dreyfus, but also hired to kill Richard Dreyfus after he killed Jeff Goldblum. Uh, it's a and classic the classic story, cla- the classic tale we love to know. And then there's also uh, Ellen Barkin, uh, who's the sister of the girlfriend, who's played by Diane Lane. They're in the room, too. Uh, and literally, at the end of the movie, they're the only people left alive.
1: That's, that's a good summary, because like the the important part being, they're in the room, too.
3: Yeah. It, that's
1: literally how the movie starts off, is, uh, oh, yeah, Henry Silva's in the corner doing nothing.
2: Being Henry Silva. Here's
1: Michael J. Pollard. Oh, never mind. We just killed Michael J. Pollard.
3: Yeah. Like they had they had classic Hollywood uh classic Hollywood henchmen just to like burn off just waste because they had so much star power in this movie that was completely and totally wasted.
1: Yeah, and again it, it's uh it goes back to the whole Larry Bishop fail something, where it's like you get these things just handed to you and then they cease to have any kind of meaning or significance where it's like, Yeah, I can get whoever the fuck I want in my
3: movie. You know yeah, it's like yeah.
2: You think you, that you would do something useful with it?
3: Is is the thing? Well, the thing, the useful thing that he did is that they said his amazingly hilarious, witty dialogue.
2: <laughs> oh, the, the alliteration and yeah, yeah. Like
3: Let's, it's he's trying to do like a smart aleck, like Tarantino thing. Because the only movie, I mean, sure, he was Larry Bishop. He was, hey, I'm Joy Bishop's kid over here. I want to make a movie. But the fact that <laughs> this was the time when literally anybody's shitty knockoff Tarantino script got made. That definitely helped it get made. Yeah. Uh, so and I was like, hey, I've got I got snappy patter dialogue, but it's it's the stupidest, most like childish, idiotic attempts at like being clever it's like, that I've ever ever heard.
2: Like, can you have like subliterate wordplay? Like that's that's my question. <laughs>
3: it is the closest thing to that.
1: <laughs> it's the it's closest also, possible thing. It's also one of my favorite um, bad writing tropes is um, Lines that are literally meaningless delivered with great earth-shattering importance. Like there's a point where Larry Bishop's character says, "You know what my philosophy is? To hell with goddamn everything."
2: Oh, <laughs> you're deep, Tony. I know. And I'm like, <laughs> well, it
1: really shows in your filmmaking.
2: <laughs> I, th- I think it. I I enjoy though in the last scene because there's been so much of that. Like, you know, uh, sort of stylized, you know, pitter-patter kind of dialogue. And then at the end when Ellen Barkin runs in and she's like, I've had it with all this Nick, Vic, Mick shit. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Like, I hear you. Yeah.
3: I That's wonder- a nice bookend because one of the first quote-unquote jokes in the movie is delivered by Gabriel Byrne when he says, Vic is sick, Mick. Vic is a sick prick, Mick. Ah. Oh. If you feel bad for Gabriel Byrne, like yeah. Well, he he is he is embarrassing. Yeah, this is, like this is absolutely. I want. I felt so bad for him. Yeah. Like I'm looking at him. I like yelling at the screen. I'm like, you were in Miller's Crossing. Yes. Said
1: that. Yeah. At one point, he was like, "Hey, remember I was in Miller's Crossing?" Yeah. yeah it's
2: like,
3: dude. Like this that is, is again horrible. <laughs>
2: And I, I I don't remember the exact timeline, but I would assume Miller's Crossing came out first. It did. And, it did. And 80, this, 80,
3: 85 or eighty
2: yeah. six? Oh, it's even older than that. Oh, no, like,
3: 91. But, oh, yeah, that's what
2: I would have thought. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and just to see this as just a, a dim reflection of that same kind of dialogue, because the dialogue in Miller's Crossing is, like, show, so, like,
3: sharp and stylized. And oh, it's I, so good. Yeah. It's so good. It's like, t- you're Tom Reagan. What are you doing? This is... and that, he, oh god. I mean everybody's bad. Like yes. uh like uh, Goldblum is catatonic.
1: It's it's the uh, it's the most gold bloom performance. Just like with yeah. us and mumbles. It's, it's
2: and, the uh,
3: uh the yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, well, well, well yes. I mean it seems like like the way to get out of this thing with your dignity intact is just to commit not at all. And so Matt's what most people made as their their choice and that was a smart pick god love them but gabriel Byrne decided to really commit to it which was absolutely the worst thing he could have done
2: yeah and again like like i say like you you kind of cringe watching it because you're like oh gabriel Byrne, he showed up to do a job and damn it he did it
3: yeah it's like i hate you right now but god damn it i respect you yeah (laughs) you're 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 fucking you're earning whatever paycheck you got for this thing which is probably scale because once again favors yeah
0: exactly.
3: favors for the fail son everybody let's get together and pretend that this is an actual script so that the fail son doesn't get mad at us and start yeah
2: there's a time it used to be enough to like you know throw him a nice birthday party but now you got to indulge him in this yeah Yeah, it's true yeah Yeah, like like how would you hire a clown
3: it's like yeah it's like larry frank sinatra sang at your 10th birthday party you don't You do not deserve any other favors from Hollywood.
1: (laughs) Now I have a question, and it's the first of many, many, many
3: questions.
1: (laughs) Is that Gabriel Byrne's actual accent?
3: I think it's close to what he's. I think. I mean, it's 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 Irish. He's doing an Irish accent.
1: It's about as Uh, Irish as Orson Welles and Lady from Shanghai. Yeah. Some kind of weird Irish cartoon.
3: Yeah. Well, that's just it. I think that like. Because he was going so broad, and he was, uh, that I think that you know his accent almost broadened, maybe, maybe even so, subconsciously. Yeah, at some point he's just
2: like, yeah, let's go, let just go full Lucky Charms on this one.
3: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like there was no other way to be. <laughs> so
2: that's that's one one question answered. Uh, yeah. Now my question though is like, because I I was already aware of this movie, but I don't know how. Like what, what sadistic you know, um, notion caused you to suggest this, this Well, it's podcast. because
3: I, after, I was one of those insufferable white boys whose uh, cinematic imagination was basically shaped by Quentin Tarantino by seeing those first couple of Quentin Tarantino movies way too young. Oh, yeah. And it's basically like internalizing that entire approach to film as like the Ne the Plus Ultra. And so I spent the rest of the 90s uh, assiduously watching every Tarantino knockoff I could get my hands on, on VHS. Yeah, uh, I feel
0: so,
3: you, I
1: mean like when I was 14 I thought the best movie ever was Reservoir Dogs. Right. Absolutely,
3: it blew my mind. Yeah. And I, I, I saw Pulp Fiction in the theater, blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I was, I saw, I saw Truth of Consequences, New Mexico. Directed by Kiefer Sutherland, which is also terrible. But, <laughs> but it might as well be Pulp Fiction compared to this. Uh, I saw Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead.
2: Oh, honestly. God, I saw that one, too. We must be about the same <laughs> age. I'm so sorry.
3: Yeah. Just so overwritten. Like one of those movies, it's just the the, the guy, you could hear the writer patting himself on the back for how clever it was. And yet... That's got Christopher Walken Preferably, in it, doesn't it? It does. It's got Andy Garcia, Christopher Walken, Jack Warden, <coughs> Treat Williams. It's a, It's not, and compared to this, it's fucking genius. <coughs> so I watched all of those movies. Yeah,
2: because at least in Things Do in Denver When You're Dead, like at least the characters have like clear motivations. Like There are reasons that things happen.
3: Yeah, it, I mean, they're like these absurdly overdrawn caricatures, and their dialogue is all just hilariously stylized and unrealistic but they also like are people whereas these characters in these movies are for the five minutes before they die just names that people (laughs) obnoxiously rhyme with things and then they get killed
1: yeah like um the movie is very fascinating in its structure in that literally (coughs) nothing builds on anything that came before it
2: yeah, and and that characters are so disposable, and the thing that, again, I don't understand from, like, a writing perspective, everyone in this movie <laughs> seems prepared to die like they've done it already. Yeah. it's just like, oh, well, you know, hey, another night sitting behind, you know, an oak desk, and, you know, I may get shot between the eyes.
3: That's just it. Like, every scene is a guy walking into a room where there's somebody who wants to kill him, and then they're like, hey, how you doing? And then they sit down across from each other, and then they talk for five minutes, and then they like do basically a sit-down quick draw? Yeah. Uh, which is really not a staple of the mob movie. It's weird, because I was
1: like, you know, if you want to direct a Western, direct a fucking Western. You know, this isn't exactly the end of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly here, you
2: know? Yeah, I, I could maybe give, give you know some, and some credit in that he was trying to do like a... Like, if you try to do, like, a mishmash of, like, a Western showdown with, like, a mob kind of veneer to it, but it doesn't work.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was it's to the point where I kind of wonder if, at a very early formative age, uh, Larry Bishop was erotically frightened by a desk with a gun on it. <laughs> so he developed this weird fetish where he just couldn't stop writing scenes about people getting killed by guys sitting behind desks. <laughs>
2: And the rest of the movie is just kind of the, you know, the the masking tape that holds the rest of it together. And just like, we need to get them in that basement so they can talk a little bit and then shoot each other from behind a desk. Yeah, yeah, like,
1: is that, a place, is that a place where mobsters go? Like, airplane the, hangers with living room sets in them?
2: The gun basement? Yeah, there's just
3: a big gun basement. Yeah, it feels like an airplane hangar. And they all just yes. go there to hang out and talk like... There's one scene where Kyle MacLachlan is talking to Gregory Hines for 10 minutes. And they're like, oh, we're going to kill you. It's like, why would you talk to this guy?
2: You're okay. just, you're going to kill him. And and like, and the flip side of that too, the nonsensical notion of it is uh, not just Kyle MacLachlan, um, you know, telegraphing to Gregory Hines. Hey, we're going to shoot you in a little bit, but let, but hear me out. Um, but th- <laughs> But then there's also the flip side of that, which is Gabriel Byrne, like his character knowing that um that Richard Dreyfuss's character is insane and then like uh, talking shit to him endlessly at his own like um at his own uh debutante yeah <laughs> gathering party and then again um uh jeez, Burt Reynolds like his character coming up to talk shit to uh to Richard Dreyfus again before his hitman shows up and kills him ending the scene uh, and it's just like people really want to insult someone to the point where they're gonna get
3: killed for it. And I'm like, no one is that stupid. Well yeah, and like that's the that's and then that's how Gabriel Byrne dies. Yeah. Where he they're at a party for the returned Richard Dreyfus, who's the boss, remember. By
1: the and, way, which is a detail that they hammer on every thirty seconds for the first yeah. half hour of the movie, Hey, Vic's getting out tomorrow. Vic's yes I out. fucking know
3: <laughs> And then <laughs> I believe that he says Vic's coming out uh, Either him or Goldblum Say it like in consecutive lines At one point Early in the movie He just says it over Literally over and over again
1: But he's on stage If you made a drinking out of that You would end up in the hospital
3: Yeah And he's like he, he just decides to start roasting His mentally unstable mob boss In front of a huge crowd On stage With a fucking microphone And then he gets killed Holy shit Yeah What I mean, a surprise.
2: And again, like he doesn't quit while he's ahead after he gets shot twice, no three times before yeah. dying, because he gets shot twice like once in each leg, gets shot a third time, then he goes down and you know and I think I made the crack to you about like, oh and by the way, I'm not dead and then yeah. sure enough, like 30
3: seconds later he's up again. yeah so, the, and, um... o- the only thing that explains the behavior of any of these characters is that they want to die so that they're not in the movie anymore <laughs> I mean, th- truth be told, the, the thing that you'd mentioned earlier
2: um, about it being like they're the last people on Earth. And maybe there is a good concept in that. But I mean, with like the galaxy stuff before, I mean, I could put like maybe like a, a Twilight Zone kind of spin on it in that they are people who are like dead, but not in that. This is kind of like a, a, a purgatory of sorts, which is why everyone's so nonchalant of being killed, because it's like, look, I'll just go on to better <laughs> um, things. I know yeah. I'm not alive.
1: Yeah, it's like yeah. There's purgatory. no way these
3: people value their existence.
1: It's yeah. like a purgatory for characters from a first-year film student's first
2: screenplay. Oh god, yeah, I know.
3: Copyright well, 1997. That, like part of my obsession with Tarantino uh, was that while I was watching all of these movies and having my cinematic world shaped by it, I actually tried my hand at like writing a screenplay uh, a for a crime movie. Was it? I, was it about stolen heroin? Like everyone else's, uh, I think that the, I think someone stole some drugs at some point. I yes. don't remember. I didn't. I didn't write that much of it. I I only really remember like a couple of scenes that I finished, and they were all like in the Tarantino style of before a violent thing happening. Some guys talking about in like you know trivialities. I think yeah. the first scene I wrote was like someone explaining like the ketchup factor. That's all I remember. <laughs> I can't tell you what that meant, but like he was explaining what that meant. Like that was a classic. But I guarantee you, if I could find it, it would be better than this movie. Well, that's the sequel I have no question.
1: Uh, that's the sequel of the peanut butter solution, the ketchup factor. Yes, yeah.
3: <laughs> I guarantee you that that was better than this.
2: Well, I think that you had a, a, a larger vision
3: beyond someone gets shot
2: behind a desk. I, I
3: think, and, that is, and that, characters make obnoxious rhyming pairs about their one-syllable names.
1: Yeah, it's it's so witty and clever. It makes me want to kill
2: myself. Now, what I thought, um, I don't know if this uh, how this came up in the suggestion, but um, I'm glad that we're covering this episode because I actually, um, you know, like you as a, a fan of indie cinema in the '90s. So I had actually seen this in the theater. I paid money to see this movie. Oh, holy, holy bastard! Yeah. Hashtag respect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was because you know, just as, as you know, you were. There to consume all like independent Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino derivative uh, cinema at the time. I was kind of like, yeah, well, let's, you know, they're opening the floodgates for independent cinema, and I want to be there. I want to like see what all this new stuff is, you know, coming down the line, and I want to give, you know, all these new movies a chance. So, like, okay, Mad Dog Time, this one looks like a cool independent <laughs> movie. So I went and saw it with a friend, and like, we just both walked out there, like, man, we got to stop
3: doing this. I'm really surprised you made it the whole way. <laughs> that, is, that is surprising to me because it I, I, is, it's just punishing. It's so inert. Yeah. There's just no energy to it. It's like it's all taking place in a coffin or something. <laughs> and there's just ever, nobody has any. Like every scene, it's the same. It's, they're all shot the same way with these gliding, like, intro interstitial shots of, like, whatever glamorous nightclub they're at. And then just people sitting at a table. Exchanging the worst dialogue in history. For yeah, ten it's, um, minutes.
1: it's the George Lucas method of directing where you just sit people down.
2: Yeah, yeah. exactly. Shot, it totally is. Shot.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Like, can you just so, like, please say my magical words for me? <laughs> I can hear them read back to me, my genius.
3: And like thinking back to it, like, I, 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 I actually tried to rewatch it a little bit before we talked about it, and I had to skip around a little bit. It was just so bad. But I, I was like, did I actually watch, sit and watch this whole thing? And, as, and I remember I did. Yeah. No, even, even I rented it. Because like, I understand the commitment. You paid for a ticket, you're going to stay. Yeah, like, I'm going to see this through to the bitter end. I could have popped that thing out of the VCR at any moment, and I didn't. That's how committed I was. <laughs> to like, just sifting through every – and the thing is, you know, they were all bad. Yeah. You know? And so maybe that like, kind of ruined my, ruined my palate to an extent. Where I couldn't say, no, I'm better than this movie. You know, because oh. I watched, like, The Immortals with Joe Padigliano and, Joy you know. Yes. Oh, Love in a 45. Uh. Wretched fucking movie. You're... Destiny turns on the radio. These are some deep cuts. Yeah. They're all awful. And so, like, maybe, because... maybe I was like, I don't deserve good things. After <laughs> it. I deserve mad dog time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is this is what I have earned No, it's kind of funny because it plays into a trope that Tim and I have joked about in our own conversations Where there are certain movies that we refer to as Tim movies
0: Oh, yeah they're
1: kind of in the same um, wheelhouse as the ones you describe, Where it's like just like these garbage-ass independent movies that nobody else saw But for some reason Tim went and saw them Like uh, and... Black Dogs starring Meatloaf
2: Yeah, well, I think it was Meatloaf and I want to say Patrick Quasey Yeah Yep so yeah, he was yep. a trucker. A trucker
3: a truck movie, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I mean I've seen like that and like um I think Wagon's East, which I think was the penultimate John Candy yes. movie. Yes.
3: Yeah. John Candy, uh Richard Lewis also in that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh
2: no way. Yeah, and continuing the Wild West theme, Almost Heroes, um
3: yeah. Chris Farley's last, Farley movie, last movie. Yeah. Rob and Matthew yeah
2: Ma- and Matthew Perry 'cause and again, like all these are sort of, sort of born out of this naivete. The same reason that like I saw Godzilla two thousand where I'm like Hank Azaria, he's in the Simpsons, he's great, Vicky Lewis on News Radio, you know, there um and uh uh what's uh Ferris Bueller, that actor. And I'm just like, yeah, these are all good reasons. I don't know who this Roland Emmerich director guy is, but whatever.
1: <laughs> well and um I think as uh as Cineas as we all are some kind of ass um mad dog time on a podcast 30 people listen to um (laughs) uh, there's a point in one's cinema viewing life where you stop giving movies a chance because you're just too bitter and you know like you reached that point um matt you talked about your palate being ruined um for me like uh I'm in the same boat where, like, I don't go to see anything because I've given so many things a chance and have been just fucking let down every
2: Yeah, time. And, and I think that that's the thing that it's only through this horrible experience that after a while you realize you're like, oh, wait, I don't have to finish watching this movie. Like, I can stop at any time.
1: And yet we did. We sat and watched this whole thing. And I waited. Now, um, as I alluded to you, Matt, uh, Tim... Uh, hit traffic in LA as he was coming here and he said well you could start the movie without me and I was like hell no I'm not watching this shit by myself.
2: Yeah I got better things (laughs) to do with my time I could like stare at a wall or I could take a nap
3: yeah, I can only imagine sitting through that entire thing with an incredulous uh, friend co-watching it with me. <laughs> well, uh, yeah,
2: part of it, too, is, you know, having already been there and, like, you know, Ellen Barkin's doing the, like, you know, Nick, Vic Nick, whatever. And, like, is Jen, just like, oh, fuck off or yeah. something like that. <laughs> but, but th- I've that, already
1: said that, like, 400 times. Yeah,
2: well, that's the point where, like, it, this isn't, like, 20 minutes in the movie and I'm like, hang on, Jen, there's more of this. Like it gets worse from here.
1: Brass balls.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, rec- I remember uh, last week when I was in New York, me and some friends watched one of the late era Segal movies that's on Netflix.
1: Oh, wasn't Nick Mullins just talking about that? on New Yeah, Nintendo? yeah, we
3: watched A Good Man,
1: oh. uh,
3: which <laughs> is just, I mean, it's it's inept beyond description. But we had a great time watching it. Uh, and we've watched it like we watched Stone Cold, Brian Bosworth's <laughs> uh, Star Turn with uh, Lance Hendrickson, which I watched as a kid. Which and one with Lance? We watched. It's he he go uh, brought, the Boz goes undercover in Lance Hendrickson's Outlaw Motorcycle Gang. Oh wow. Uh, and it ends with basically them becoming essentially ISIS in that they do a massive suicide attack on the uh Alabama state capitol and kill like literally everyone in the <laughs> so Alabama the government. Or... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's actually a fascinatingly, hilariously terrible movie, and we have a fun time. And I, uh, But I honestly think that if we tried to watch this, it would be stone silence for 20 minutes until somebody had the guts to say, we need to turn this off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and like... Um...
2: See, the only non aliens Lance Henriksen movie that I know is Pumpkinhead, so I'm not... I'm completely unaware of Which that is other one. Good. Yeah, well, yeah.
1: <laughs> <But> <laughs> Stan yeah, like, Winston. Um, and again, like going back to the the fail son idea and the idea of like someone just being handed all these resources on a platter and just utterly squandering them, mm-hmm. just completely. And r- like right now, am I thinking like, is there a better metaphor for America today?
3: And like the no yeah we are disruption. all Larry Bishop absolutely <laughs> yeah we, we have squandered our patronage there's no question and like and and the thing that is most repulsive to me in so much of modern American discourse is just the entitlement of people no not like oh Millennials are entitled but like right. uh, you know like just the regular assumption of well you know we we deserve all this shit and it's all shit, you know, uh, without any kind of effort or, or just as a birthright and then just taking it for granted and, you know, like basically saying, like looking at a fucking, uh, happy meal toy and being like, yes, it's okay to me that the world will be drowned in seawater because we made these, you know, <laughs> like it, I, I have, I have a little, you know, uh, emperor's new groove, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like squeeze toy. toy.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And like and we're fine with that. And it's that sort of just like mindless just of taking for granted. And that's what Larry Bishop did. He was just like, I mean, I'm I'm am I'm obviously brilliant, you know. All of my dickhead sycophant friends read my terrible script and told me it was good. You know. My well, dad's friends said it was good. So I'm gonna make the movie
2: it's sort of like the idea that like you know i i celebrate the system that's put me at the top of it it's like well i've i've ended up here purely as a consequence of of birth but i must deserve the position that i've that i've been given or that i've earned oh
3: yeah yeah that's that's it exactly yeah just that oh yeah people need to work hard just like i did by virtue of being the son of somebody with a lot of money like all of my yeah like every like my dickhead like libertarian cousins who you know literally work for their dad's company talk talk to me about the need for self reliance and how people are too lazy and all that
2: yeah it's nice uh, when you have every resource and opportunity at your beck and call
3: and yeah the- and then you may, and then we have collectively used it to make mad dog time
0: <laughs>
3: we are literally living in mad dog time right now the Trump administration is mad dog time. hey so buckle I, up, I hear everybody. Trump's
2: getting out tomorrow <laughs>
3: <laughs> He's gonna come out in the in the uh, in the medical robe yeah. <laughs> in, with the straitjacket over his shoulder. Yeah, just all disheveled. Like, dust. Mick, Nick,
1: Vic, they're all terrible.
3: They're sad. <laughs> These guys sad yeah, they're no good. They're no good. Melania, what are you doing? Behind my back
1: <laughs> and keep in mind that this movie came out, flopped horribly,
2: was liked by no one. Yeah, just sank without a trace.
3: But then, thanks, and we can blame Quentin Tarantino completely for this one. Uh, (laughs) After this movie made literally $40,000 or something like that on an $8 million budget. Of which I'm a party. With that cast, uh, he was never heard from again until in 2004 he was brought in uh, and is to play a small part in Kill Bill 2. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the scene. The scene in Kill Bill 2 that everyone who sees it says, what is this and why is it in here? When <laughs> Michael Madsen goes to the strip club and the strip club owner gives him a hassle about how he's late yeah. and then sends him home. Uh, yeah. That's Larry Bishop. The guy oh, my who goes, God. It's like he goes, he's... Yeah, the guy who goes... Uh, he goes... Should tell me about his useful as an asshole right here. That's him. <laughs>
1: that's that's it.
2: him. it. really is the linchpin of Kill Bill Larry, too. Larry
1: Bishop has like a special like superpower. Like he just he sprinkles fairy dust and like completely inexplicable pointless movie scenes spring up out of the earth.
2: <laughs> it's kind of yeah. like the um, in Labyrinth those like fiery guys that can pull themselves apart.
1: Oh yeah, like the you know they they start pulling off their heads and you're like what like okay why is this in the movie? Yeah. It's just like this yeah' is not moving the plot at it's, all.
2: It's, it's nice it's that the, the story stopped for five minutes while we could just goof off yeah,
3: well, well the we funny the thing comments. about this like, yeah. I've often watched that scene and thought what the fuck is this and it's sort <laughs> of I think I've come to the conclusion that it's the first of uh, Tarantino's because uh, uh, there's really is a divide in his career that like you can mark from bet- the two kill bills where he is much more interested in subverting audience expectations and, like, basically fucking with people who are watching his movie and what they want to see and prolonging suspense beyond any reasonable tension point. Uh, And I think this is his first attempt at that, this totally pointless scene with this absolute just asshole. This, like, (laughs) This asshole right here. Never, like, (laughs) if if he'd gotten his head cut off at the end of that scene, then there would, like, be the catharsis of him. But no, he's just a prick for 10 minutes, feels like an hour, and then he's never in the movie again. And like, I think the point of that scene is is him like, because at that point you know that the bride is coming for Michael Madsen, and you're waiting for that confrontation, but no, before you get to that, you have to watch Larry Bishop ham it up in this strip club for an hour and a half. Yeah, <laughs> so like... he literally put him in there to be an annoyance to the audience. Uh, joke's on you, you thought you were gonna be entertained. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I think, and Tarantino, like his movies post, everyone's like since Kill Bill 2 have had more of those moments in them and those scenes in them designed to be like, is it really going to be, what are we doing here before something like explodes? And I think this was his first attempt at that. So he literally put Larry Bishop in this movie to be an annoying waste of time. So, well, so it's Glenn, what he's good at. So, so Gwen
1: yeah. has moved on from feet to wasting the audience's time. That's his job right.
3: now. <laughs> and, and then, the, but then the disaster of it is, like it'd be, if it was just that scene, it'd be one thing. But after that movie, he was in that movie, he collaborated, he, he told Tarantino, I got another idea for a movie.
2: <laughs> Vic's going back in. Yeah, ah, <laughs> the old switcheroo.
3: I want to do i want to do a motorcycle movie
1: oh because and... wasn't this how he kind of got his start was doing like, yes biker pictures
3: exactly yeah and of course because tarantino is this you know totally obsessed uh cinephile with this incredible intense fetish for hollywood history which is of course Presumably why he would put up with being around Larry Bishop for more than five minutes in the first place. But it's
1: barely <laughs> Hollywood history. Like these are like worthless garbage movies that Yeah, no but that's that
3: he has no but that's the thing about Tarantino, he makes no distinctions. Yes. <laughs> like he is just omnivorous consumer of all of it. And he does not differentiate. So He's for like him a trash
1: Scorsese, basically. Ab- yeah. Exactly.
3: So like all of that shit to him, it's on the same level as like the Wild Ones or or uh any other classic film. Well the and thing so, He's and like, what? do it, make the movie, and make I'll that produce movie. it. And then <laughs> well, he did. You
2: sure and then you know? we got another saying. garbage movie out of it. Yeah, and,
3: and it's we, called Hellride.
1: Yeah, we briefly talked about it, and you said it was also garbage.
3: It's so fucking bad. It's <laughs> that's so that's bad. That's it's, 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 it's slightly more dynamic because every scene isn't literally people sitting in a room talking to each other and then one shitting another. Like they'll be in a bar, or they'll be in a different mm-hmm. bar. Or sometimes they'll be riding the motorcycles. So like that just by itself is more dynamic than anything in Mad Dog Time. So so not just a low-key lit soundstage. It is somehow maybe even more incomprehensible plot-wise. Because the film starts with Larry Bishop on the ground in the desert with an arrow in his body. Mm -hmm. And a woman like saying, oh, you're fucked up. And then she like squats on his face to pull it out. (laughs) Then, well, that's how you start a movie. Then it cuts, and it says, 32 years earlier, <laughs> and there's a kid riding a, a tricycle or something, and he watches his mom get set on fire and killed.
1: Holy fuck.
3: Then it cuts back and it says, 32 years later, but not back to him with the arrow, to <laughs> another guy getting burned alive. It's and then they, you know, it's back, like poetry. then they cut back to Larry Bishop after that, but it's at a different point. Presumably before the arrow, not quite thirty-two years later.
1: Wait, so he yeah. he expanded on what he does at the beginning of Mad Time, Mad Dog Time, where for some reason it says at the beginning of the film, many years later. It's like many years after the credits. I
2: many years <laughs> yeah, after
3: the creation of the universe. Exactly. Yes, and so this movie bounces back. It's a, it, it's it's ba- it's back and forth, uh, flash. <laughs> From nineteen, and then and, the, so, and and they never go back to the point before the flashback, so you have no idea where anything is. They they bring characters in, and they immediately die, just like in this one. You have no idea who anyone is. It like what un- makes it
2: Gianandalu bullshit, or it's like, yeah, oh, eight years later, sixteen years earlier. It's like, all right, sure.
3: And what makes it horrifying, though, is that <clears throat> if the first one, uh, Larry got to uh, enjoy his fetish for guys with guns on desks and hobnobbing with a-list celebrities. In this one, he's literally just he's na- he's with a naked woman in every scene basically. <laughs> and he's this like 60-year-old gross dude with like black hair that is either a horrible dye job or a wig. I'm betting wig. And and like a fucking soul patch glued underneath his lip. Uh, and just like this like leathery skin. He gets with his these... hair done <coughs> the same place as Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. With these naked women like writhing on top of him. It's just a nightmare. <coughs> yeah.
1: yeah, and in, in Mad Dog Time, he gave himself a part where he would get to make out with Angie Everhart for no
3: reason. Yeah, right. That's the yeah, there's this, there's this scene where he's just making out with Angie Everhart out of nowhere. She has no lines, I don't think, in the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> It's just, hey, I'm going to make out with Angie Everhart. Hey. Yeah,
1: she's basically, uh, you know, strong roles for women. She's basically the hostess of the movie. Because she, like, <laughs> yeah. conducts Goldblum into a basement and, like, makes out with Larry Bishop, and that's it.
3: Yeah, she's like, she's like a very welcoming TGIF uh, hostess. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, and then uh, my character, who isn't related to anyone else and is just some hired gun, he's making out with a, with a dame.
1: Because <laughs> that's what you did back then. They made out with the dames. and The dames yeah, loved
3: it. A, if that was a juicy dish, you went in for a kiss. That's what you did.
1: You know, dames never said no back then. It was, it was a yep. good time. Yep.
3: But this one, he pushes it way farther, and it's way grosser. Just him rolling around with these women who, I mean, I pray were medicated. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they could handle the trauma of that memory of this guy. Because like, he's, like, he's like a slab of leather he's like a jerky man
1: yeah and the uh, thing is is that he because when he shows up in mad dog time you're like what the fuck is wrong with his face
2: <laughs> yeah, so well that was the thing i remember because i recognized all the actors with the exception of uh you know the the auteur but i just remember there's this one really ugly guy Yeah, <laughs> <And> i'm like <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah yeah i'm like okay hey, that's that's the guy <laughs>
3: That's why he was making out with Angie Everhart. I get it now. <laughs> Everything makes like, sense, and yet it doesn't.
1: Yeah, because he really does look like a melted candle with sunglasses oh, yeah.
3: on it. Yeah, and it's even worse in this one because, as I said, he like has all these things to try to make himself look more vital, like the wig and the soul patch. And he's wearing like a motorcycle cut, which... I mean, it's even worse in its own way than like the stupid suit. <laughs> it's like he's not a motorcycle guy.
1: Oh dude, and I swear to God, I swear to fucking god, there's a part in Mad Dog Time where you can where he looks like he's wearing wedges to make him look taller. Because I <laughs> Just, at why
2: not go the angle like the, log. the
1: top of his foot? I'm like, he's wearing fucking high heels. What the fuck? It's
3: like yeah, I it's... was. I guarantee you he was. That's like that old school. Hollywood vanity, you know, yeah. like like the hair pieces and the wedges. Like nowadays, like I guess they're too self conscious around. Like T- Tom Cruise is like three feet tall, but he there he just sort of like okay, we'll, you know, force perspective and you know I'm not yeah. gonna um, every,
1: every
2: put him on a box. couple apple boxes.
1: Yeah, is every that, Tom uh, Cruise movie is Darby O'Gill and the Little People, basically.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, I don't think he would like wear. He would not wear high heels. No, I think that beyond the pale, especially since he runs so much. He yeah.
1: Would, he might have worn he might have worn heels before he divested himself of all his body things, but not now.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the other and then even though this isn't as high profile as Mad Dog Time was, uh I don't know if he even got really got a theatrical release. It's still he's still able to pull in uh some I guess former A-list cameos. Uh Dennis Hopper shows up and rides a motorcycle for a while which, you know, evokes uh evokes everyone's favorite uh uh, motorcycle classic uh, and then there's a really awkward in retrospect cameo there's a one scene cameo with uh, David Carradine that ends with him being strangled to death <laughs>
2: oddly prescient the scripts.
3: yeah I like. I watched that. And I did the. I did the. Uh, the Carson uh, <laughs> the collar. Oh, yeah, you
0: know
3: oh, Honestly, it wouldn't
1: surprise me if Carradine asked them to write that in.
2: Right. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean. Carradine could have been doing that. Um, scene, Carson uh, collar.
3: Could, some, could someone choke me? Maybe a little bit. Just a little, <laughs> a little choke. Just give me a little choke, please.
1: <laughs> that was he. He did that in lieu of pay. He's like, okay, I'll be in your movie. You don't have to pay me, but I get a choking scene. <laughs> uh, okay.
3: He's got a choking rider. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like, access to the craft service table, or you choke me in the movie.
2: (laughs) Till I'm blue, none of this half-ass bullshit.
1: (laughs) Now, the important thing to remember, kids, is risk-aware consensual kink. Yes. Let's (laughs) learn from David's non-example.
2: Yeah, you you need a a spotter for these kinds of things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Breath play is never safe, children. <laughs> Take it from David Carradine. Oh, but it is fun. It's just, uh, such a high. <laughs> it's the best.
2: I, I recommend everyone listening try it. That's
1: why, that's why <laughs> my next film is literally going to be all choking scenes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like this movie, um, you know, just looking up on IMDb, there's some choice quotes on the quotes page.
2: <laughs> Those are bad choices, I can uh, tell you that.
1: Well... Uh, you know, it begs the question of why this was chosen as a memorable quote because the quote is, "Now give me a hand with this because I got things to go and places to do."
3: Right. <laughs> yeah, like that's that's the level. Like that's that's like a dad joke. That's like barely a joke. That's like that's like that's like meat to please ya or something like that. You know. <laughs> well, this it's is great. It, it does
1: terrible. sound like this movie is someone's dad like making a movie
3: yes absolutely
2: well yeah. The, yeah there was no stone unturned in sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel of wordplay to mix my metaphors hell you should put that in the movie <laughs> that's a, that's an atrocious
3: like sentence that's what, construction that's what, what
2: yeah it?
3: the <laughs> only good line having anything to do with this movie is not in the film it was about the film it was in roger ebert's review where he said that the film itself should be cut up into ukulele picks for the poor He also said it was the only film he'd ever seen that where it would have been preferable to watch a blank screen for the same amount of time that the movie lasted.
2: <laughs> I, and I would I would tend to agree with him. I yeah. Dig it. Like I
1: could have been staring at my dog's asshole instead of watching an hour and a half. Yeah, like um.
2: I mean, at least least you'd have time for your mind to wander, rather than it just like turning itself into knots, going like, "When is this story going to start making sense? When are these scenes going to start to gel?"
1: Yeah, the mind—the mind wants to make sense of things. The human mind wants to find patterns. And unless you're, this movie is like a perfect glassy surface that the brain just slides off of again and again. It's like, "What are these characters' motivations? What are their relations to each other?"
2: Why is Vic so intimidating?
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of... Um, Matt, have you ever seen Cotton Club? No. I'm, I need to do Cotton Club for a future episode because it's a very fascinating movie. Um, but it's a, it's a piss-poor Coppola film from the 80s um, starring uh, Richard Gere as a, a suave trigger man. Uh, Diane Lane as the gangster's mole. And half the movie is Richard Gere. Um, he works for Dutch Schultz. You know, the Dutch Schultz. You know uh a very that. a very intimidating gentleman, mm-hmm. uh, my understanding, and Richard Gere spends the whole movie just cucking his boss with Diane Lane, like he's literally fucking his boss's mole like right under his nose and like just doesn't even make secret out of it, and then his boss just kind of seethes with anger and then doesn't do anything about it and this movie is kind of the same thing he's it's like, paralyzed it's
2: like, with rage,
1: yeah, it's like the whole like uh Paul Angus scene where I'm like. You know, why is, he, why is he doing this and why is Richard Jarvis letting him do it?
2: Yeah, it's like who gave Gabriel Byrne a mic if he knows that he's just going to do this?
3: <laughs> you know, I mean, talking about how it resists analysis and, and any kind of sense, uh, it really makes you think that like, it could be avant-garde. That, if that's being
2: very generous.
3: If there was any sort of competence or visually interesting information on screen. Well, he
2: he did those fades that were, like, you'd fade to a pastel color. I
1: feel like um, maybe there was an effort to save this movie in the editing room. uh, And that was, like, their one... That that was one of their, like... Editing room ...attempts to ER. make it look like there was something cohesive going on. Um, Tim did point out that, uh, uh, as he put it, this is kind of like a retarded David Lynch film.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a good... Yeah, because it's, like... You could squint at it and think that all of the weird, flat, affectless dialogue recitation and sort of, die and, and people in lines that like don't mesh up into an actual conversation. You could like kind of squint and see that as intentional. Yeah. And Lynchian.
1: And then there's but some weird um, sound design things going on, where it, you know, like in a Lynch film, you'll have that weird, um, like. Undercurrent of ambient sound, yeah, which is which might be coming from the blood rushing in your ears, or who knows where it's coming from. That gives you this feeling of unease. Like it seems to be in this movie, but to no actual end. Yeah,
2: and other things too. Like even like well, what what um what caused the you know the light bulb to go off for me is that you had uh, Diane Lane and uh, Ellen Barkin, like the blonde and the brunette. Like that's a classic uh, Lynch trope. Oh yeah, yeah. Like he likes his kind of ice queen and his oh my fiery gosh, one. He's
1: just like Mohan Drive. It totally he is. Had a stroke.
2: Yeah, and also other things too, like Henry Silva just being kind of like this menacing, shadowy guy that doesn't do anything. Yeah, and like the color palette where it's got like these kind of like like flesh-colored walls and and everything, like all it's it's claustrophobic, low-key lighting.
3: Also, Kyle MacLachlan.
2: Yeah, Richard
3: Pryor for no reason. Oh my god! Just like Lost Highway! Oh my god! Yeah! This is a fucking failed Lynch movie. Yeah, so...
1: Poor Richard Pryor, like... And I know this was at a time when uh, he was... I don't know, he wasn't well for a very long time. Yeah. Before his death, and like, he really looks at... You know, and he's in the movie.
2: He's in basically like an insert.
1: Yeah, it's an insert shot of him sitting next to an elevator.
2: Yeah and he opens a door and that's all you see of him. Yeah. But yeah, it again, like there there are these kind of like retarded Lynchian <laughs> undertones to it.
1: I hope I hope the day the half day he spent on the set to do this pile like at least paid for like a day of his like in-home care.
2: <laughs> Some palliative care out yeah, of exactly. it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Some hospice.
1: Ugh, it's so depressing. It's just, and then Rob Reiner driving a car.
3: I yep. yeah.
2: I completely forgot Reiner about
3: actually, he's one of those guys, he actually has a decent, he does a decent job. Well, he's Rob he, he Reiner, so, you know. might give, he so, might give him know. the best performance. The, non, the non-actor the non might have the best performance in the movie. Yeah. That, where that he's he just had, the jovial driver for a minute. Marty DeBerge.
2: Yeah, it has nothing to do with anything, but, yeah, if well, he's going to not... drive him to the electric banana. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing in this movie has anything to do with anything. There is that. Like, um, which is why it has kind of invaded our attempts to explicate it or put it in a context beyond
2: uh it's just a 90s tarantino knockoff
1: yeah tarantino knockoff and you know the larger context of hollywood fail sons
2: yeah
3: (laughs) yeah you you think of like contemporary fail sons uh your breck eisner's
1: yes which i looked up and like i'm like i fucking hate this prick so much and i've never even seen sahara i don't need to (laughs)
3: Yeah, and, like, obviously Max Landis.
2: Oh, Uh, yes. Yeah, he's, again, he's kind of the... The the
1: quintessential uh, ended up on third base, thought he hit a triple. Yeah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) But you know what? You watch this movie, and all of their, like, crap looks a lot better. (laughs) And you're like, you know, these guys have an unfair place in Hollywood, but they can still put out, you know, middle-of-the-road crap that, frankly, any, you know, if you give somebody else that job, and make that movie it's gonna probably look about the same you know yeah like a, a like a low budget remake of the crazies it's gonna look the yeah. same you know yeah. like the 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 the, uh, the fucking frankenstein movie whoever writes that it's probably gonna be the same movie yeah but
2: the basic levels confidence
3: even more star power than any of those guys have gotten and made just a Festering, just radioactive shit just,
2: uh, utterly compl- irredeemable.
3: That like isn't a movie by most definitions of the term. Like it's like orthogonal to filmmaking, <laughs> and like that that is a spe- that puts him above all the contemporary fail sons.
1: That's true because, um, I mean,
3: and talking about the film itself too,
2: like i noticed how conspicuous how conspicuous ugh, conspicuous it was in that there was one uh, external scene in daylight everything else is like on some dimly lit soundstage yeah it's that one of that one uh just establishing shot of jeff gold walking down the stairs and into a door the only scene that takes place outside on something other than a soundstage
1: which begs the question of why that was necessary
2: it, it's the,
1: because it's, it's it's very anomalousness would seem to indicate that it means something, but I fucking doubt it. <laughs> I fucking doubt if it. If
2: you can dumb yourself down a couple orders of magnitude, I'm sure that it'll be interesting and in that you'll be like, "This means something," beyond just going like, "Oh, this is supposed to mean something."
1: Well, you know what my philosophy is, Tim? What? To hell with goddamn everything. Oh, you're so deep. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm going to write a screenplay <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dust off my ketchup factor screenplay
2: yeah I'm dying to learn what the ketchup factor is
3: I forgot what it was is, is it like, it is,
2: is it like zero factor? Like, it's like it's,
3: it's, it's like a pet theory of the character about like what foods are gross in the morning or something and it has to do with, like, whether or not you could put ketchup on them. I don't really remember. It was uh, stupid. It was terrible. Yeah, but It was a kind of sense. It was still better than that Dog Time. Next
1: Chapo reading series, The Ketchup Factor. <laughs> <laughs> I could find
3: it, man. I mean, I have some of my terrible writing uh, from my teen years, but not that one. Oh, that so one man. never made it to transfer to, like, a hard copy that I could save, sadly.
1: I mean, I did uh... – I did throw the first screenplay I wrote the fuck away. Uh,
2: it yeah. had my name on it,
1: and I was like, "There's no way I'm letting anybody see this."
2: <laughs> well, I was fortunate as a playwright to have my um, my AIDS awareness one act be actually performed. So, hey, UCLA? No, no, this is in high school. <laughs> oh,
1: <laughs> it was not at the food Playhouse.
2: No, no, everything else after that was it was all downhill. <laughs> so-
1: well, we can only hope that uh, Larry Bishop will continue to fail upward as he ages. Yeah, I'm hoping
3: that uh, we get an announcement that he's going to direct the next Star Wars movie. <laughs> that would really be amazing to me. Just the star power Mar- alone. a Marvel Ted It would
1: still be better than
3: Phantom Menace. Boo, you know it would. It's got a similar, he's got a similar everyone sit down style of filmmaking.
1: Uh, yeah it's similarly inert like characters motivations don't make sense yeah nothing really builds on anything that came before it
3: wow so and like would probably be r-rated with a lot of gratuitous nudity like a lot of space nymphs rubbing their breasts in the face of a weirdly leathery old jedi you've never seen before
2: with leather gloves and you know and like, yes yeah. and so oh yeah the
3: leather gloves like they were fingerless right
2: they were fingerless gloves yeah, yeah.
3: fingerless leather gloves oh on. man what a cool
1: fucking guy
2: I bet he was it's on just, the ground yeah, floor like, of I'll, Bitcoin
3: I got to look cool nothing cool. cooler than fingerless leather gloves and while wearing a suit forget about it. <laughs>
1: I wonder if he wore the
3: lifts because he was directing a movie at Jeff Goldblum. It was like six. That might, Yeah. He, he I, I, I bet whenever he's in a movie, it like causes a slight like crisis of confidence for any of his male co-stars. <laughs> like, as we all know, all actors basically, except for Liam Neeson and Jeff Goldblum are like three feet tall. <laughs> so when the, he comes in, they must just be like, Oh boy.
2: <laughs> Can we get a chair for this guy or something? Yeah. Like,
3: He'd be sitting in this scene, can we block it so he's sitting?
2: And, yeah, if you think about it, Goblin is sitting in all those scenes. He's oh sitting at sure. a desk, he's sitting at a couch, he's, he's sitting never in a booth. Sitting.
3: Maybe that was why. Wow. Yeah, I think- we might have cracked the case.
2: Yeah, we're unlocking the, the secrets of the mystery of uh, really? Mad Dog Time. It's going yeah. to become a very sane dog any moment now.
1: <laughs> I look forward to the uh, Tashin coffee table book about Mad Tom- <laughs> time Dog Time that we will be writing. <laughs> I I I uh I would like to enlist Matt to write the foreword, which expands upon uh, Tarantino
3: knockoff films. Awesome. i i I did so much fucking research to write about that. I would actually love to. I yeah. I watched all of them.
2: That's a book they're... unto itself.
3: All terrible. <laughs> that uh... it was like fifty. It was like a hundred hours of my childhood gone. <laughs> not just like hours. not just watching shitty movies, but like. You know, what could I have been? What what formative experiences artistically was I missing? Because I was watching *Love in a 45* <laughs> with fucking Gil Bellows.
1: This is like a, it's like the end of that *Mr. Show* sketch where Bob and David are those guys who like get mad at each other in a bar. Yeah, yeah. And they end oh, up no, getting married to like draw out the conflict, and then in the end like David dies and Bob just goes. My life. (laughs) I
3: I watched so many shittily staged Mexican standoffs.
1: Yeah, there's um, and there are movies like uh that uh, I don't I I wouldn't say they're having a renaissance. I think that because uh you know we're so in love with garbage culture, you know this podcast. There's no shortage of it. Yeah. Um, you know these movies are sort of being rediscovered. Like uh, I know they've done a couple on Red Letter Media. Um, there was high voltage with Antonio Sabato Jr., which is basically just like
2: Sabato is shoe, right? <laughs> <laughs> Spanish...
1: <laughs> yeah, where it's basically like a Z grade, like John Woo ripoff. Oh yeah. And then um, there's one which is which specifically ties into Tarantino ripoffs, which is a movie called The Item.
3: Oh yeah, I remember them talking about The Item. Yeah. yeah.
1: Which. Uh... I guess that's just jaw dropping. Yeah, I guess he took the kiss me deadly pulp fiction like glowing suitcase and just like ran with that. It's like a weird little worm alien in a case that makes everybody like go nuts.
2: Cuz the cuz the briefcase is the thing from pulp fiction that needed expanding on. Yeah. Like, this, this is the expanded universe pulp fiction. And oh my god, now I put that idea out there. No, yeah,
3: that's <laughs> going to happen. I'll to cut it. it. Yeah. That's, that's going to happen. Some yeah. some <laughs> coked up executive is going to be like Okay, uh, the Pulp, Cic- Pulp Fiction prequel, how did they get the box, and what's, or what's in the bag, yeah, what's yeah. in the briefcase, how did they get in there, and the last scene is like them going to Big Kahuna Burger, <laughs> <laughs> and then you watch it, and you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen next, yeah. because oh, I don't so love that, isn't that yeah. our favorite thing to see in a film, when you're told a tale, where the ending is totally meaningless, because you know what's going to happen isn't that great, that, that new thing that they do? <laughs> That's a thing. Where they fill in all the spots with this just shit that <laughs> by, by its very nature can have no dramatic like, weight to it because I, I, the ending is determined.
2: I love stories where the climax is a foregone conclusion. Those are the most awesome, compelling. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> where, like instead of any kind of emotional catharsis, you just turn into like, ah, it's burger they eat when they get killed.
2: <laughs> it's, it's that thing I recognize. All right.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: It's, uh, and that also...
2: Um... Like, like garçon means boy. Why does that waitress know that? Like, what's her
3: story? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, like, driving to bake a Huneburger and burger, and they cut to her, and she's on a bus, and she's reading a French-English dictionary. <laughs> because she had dreams of visiting Paris. And... Yeah, exactly. She's got, like, a Fodor's Paris guide, and then a phrase book. And they're like, ah, now I get it. <laughs> yes. And then in the sequel to Pulp Fiction... there that has a scene in Paris, you can see her like walking around with a baguette by the Eiffel Tower.
2: But it, but it's like Inglorious Bastards Paris. It's like, because yeah. it's an alternate reality.
1: She's in Vichy France or some yeah. shit, I don't know. Yeah, and like it kind of, um, and I don't know if we're just getting like dumber as a society or if we're just, we're just already stupid. Is yeah. that kind of, like going back to the suitcase thing mm-hmm. um, and the things that people invest with particular import in a film, but yeah. to, like, an absurd degree where it's, like, uh, it's like the spinning, um... Oh, that
2: drove me nuts. Yeah. Where
1: I was like, wait, well, wh- what happened They're like, the
2: top? clearly it's going to fall because he's in a dream, and then other people are like, clearly it won't because he's not, and it's like, it's supposed to be ambiguous, you
1: fucking idiots! <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, uh, and, you know, my reaction is just, like, I literally don't give a fuck. Yeah. Like, I hate, I've always hated, like, Star Wars expanded universe, any of that shit, like where uh, people are answering questions that don't need answers. Yeah, it's
2: it's by it's design. There's not supposed to be a definitive answer. That's the joke.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I, it actually would not surprise me if we see um, Pulp Pulp Fiction, the prequel, on Netflix like, <laughs> next year.
2: It's. I think it's it's time has come.
1: Wait, this is going to happen because. Matt's bringing some of that chapo juju where they you guys bend reality and, like, horrible shit happens.
3: Yeah, why I really to stop talking about all of this. Yeah, I'm exactly. all making it inevitable. <laughs> the lathe of heaven is spinning up.
1: <laughs> well, how do we want to... Uh, we should probably put a bullet in Mad Dog Time. Is there anything that we want to say to sum up?
2: Well, it should all be alliterative, and we should be sitting behind a desk before we do it.
1: I am at a desk right now. Get my gun. Okay. <laughs>
2: It's, it's, it's really tough to come up with alliteration off the top of your head. Uh, See, that's
3: why he's a genius, folks. Yeah, oh, I know. Well, that's be... where Larry Bishop, that's where this talent really shines. Some
1: kind of a <laughs> savant, I guess, where, like, that's his, his only talent is, like, rhyming.
2: No, that's called
3: doing a second draft.
0: <laughs>
3: well, okay, so if uh, if Larry, there's another guy in the movie who gave his life philosophy. It's a little guy named Burt Reynolds who looked right. like he had just stepped out of an oven after basting for about four hours at <laughs> put, 350 degrees. Put in his degrees. second set of false teeth. <laughs> put
1: in his teeth and then walked out of the set.
3: <laughs> Whose motto was, fuck it. <laughs> I th-
2: that seems like the motto of anyone walking out of Mad Dog Time at the end yep. of 100 minutes. Just so like- I think
3: that's the only response really at the end that we can have. Yeah to that fuck experience it. of watching that of using the precious precious minutes of our lives <laughs> to watch that is fuck it I agree to hell
1: with goddamn everything
3: <laughs> to hell with goddamn everything <laughs>
1: Matt
3: thanks for coming on Appreciate
1: Yes thank
2: it. you
3: Thanks for having me it was great <laughs>